Hello, Parkview. Welcome to the Parkview Groups podcast. This is Thomas Hoke, your host for this week. This is the episode for the week of February 27th through March 5th. My goal each week is to inform, guide, and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make disciples. This week, we are learning from Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And then during the training segment, for those who follow along, leaders and the curious, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what I've been learning from a book by Crawford Loritz called Leadership as an Identity, about kind of the inner life of the leader. So community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. And I hope if you're listening as a group member or group leader, you are finding, experiencing new growth in Christ, new enjoyment of him, finding new things about him to love and rejoice over. I'm glad that you guys have hung around after uh, a week of illness for me. Uh, thanks for bearing with that. And so let's, uh, let's take it away. All right, a couple things to let you know about in the Parkview world. We have a congregational meeting coming up on March 6th, Monday, March 6th. That's a week from when this will come out. Um, we do have child care for ages 0 through 10. Um, that's held at Central Campus. Uh, we do need you to register for child care by Tuesday the 28th. So by the time you're listening to this, it might be a little bit too late for that. But Tuesday uh, the 28th is the last day to register for child care for that meeting. It starts at 6 with a meal and then 7 for the business meeting, so to speak. So we hope to see as many of you as possible, particularly if you are a member of Parkview Church. Uh, that's something you've agreed to prioritize. So I'd ask you to follow through on that commitment. Come to that meeting. Uh, it will be significant. So next, uh, we have an event coming out called Walk with Jesus, uh, and this is our sort of annual Easter event for families, Walk with Jesus. It's a time for kids and families to experience an amazing, thought-provoking journey. I've done it with my kids. It's really fun. Uh, an up-close look at the events of the Easter week. You sort of follow the Stations of the Cross, uh, what happened to Jesus during the last week of his life. Um, and so we need people to volunteer to help with that. Um, people to set up rooms and decorate, people to act. We need some Jesuses, <laughs> multiple. Um, we need Roman guards and, uh, you know, disciples and all kinds of people uh, to make that happen. It's a really special time. And and so if you have kids, it'd be a good time, but good thing to come to. Uh, it's on March 25th, Saturday, March 25th. Um, oh, wait, sorry, I've got that wrong. It's on April 1st. I've got that wrong. April 1st. April 9th is Easter this year. So it's on April 1st, Saturday, April 1st. Uh, from 4 to 7.30 p.m. Uh, so we'd love, if you're interested in volunteering, be a fun thing to do with your whole group uh, right around Easter. It'd also be a good thing to invite someone to join you in um, and bring your kids too. So uh, just a couple things there, congregational meeting and then Walk with Jesus coming up on April 1st, Saturday, April 1st. So uh, with that, let's move on. All right, let me uh, guide you through this week's passage. We're going to get the big picture of the passage. We're going to navigate some speed bumps that could disrupt our discussion. Uh, and I want to give you a couple places to land in application. We are in Acts 21, verses 1 through 16 this week. Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So uh, just just to kind of 
note what's happening there. Basically, it's describing kind of a, if you imagine the the land east of Italy, uh, where there's Greece is the first thing you'd run into, and then Turkey, and then going on down the coast there, there's sort of a circular, um, I don't know what you call it, I'm not a geography person, but uh, circular shape of the coast, so to speak, and that comes all the way down if you go counterclockwise, or sorry, clockwise, all the way down to Israel uh, and, and kind of the Red Sea and all that there. So um, they're basically following that clockwise. They found a ship that uh, is carrying cargo. So this, this is one way that ships in that day would make a little bit of extra money. Um, in addition to carrying their cargo, they would take on some passengers, make a little bit of extra money. Uh, Paul and his companions managed to find uh, an awesome ship was going exactly where they needed to go. This wouldn't have been too usual. Uh, it was kind of unusual. And so they end up being able to stay somewhere for seven days, even though you'll remember they're kind of rushing to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So, uh, so having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, uh, so these disciples that they've run into, their entire, have, have, have shared with him that they, they think he should not go on to Jerusalem. And it says, notice it says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to uh, go on to Jerusalem. And so what seems to have happened here is that these, uh, these disciples in Tyre, who we don't, we don't know exactly what their connection is to Paul, except for that they're, they've given them you know housing, lodging for these seven days, which is just an act of good Christian love. Um, but they say, through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And so maybe the first thing we notice here is, you know, and we know Paul is on this kind of headlong journey for Jerusalem. And here it's being told through the Spirit, do not go on to Jerusalem. Is Paul here being disobedient to the Holy Spirit? We're going to see a couple of places in this passage where Paul is told in one way or another that going to Jerusalem will be harmful and lead to pain and ultimately death for him. Um, and this is where we get to uh, what John Stott calls the difference between prediction and and prohibition. And he says that it's clear in here, in this passage, that uh, what's being discussed is not prohibition, but rather prediction. Uh, you see in this case, and in the one that we're going to come to in a few verses, that in both cases, the Spirit is telling Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you will suffer. But at the same time, it's clear that Paul senses that he is meant to go to Jerusalem. He is meant to move on. He is meant to, to go there. And so, um, it's not that Paul is disobeying the Spirit. It's that the Spirit is telling him, you will suffer in Jerusalem. We saw this back in verse uh, 23 of chapter 20 when he was with the elders in the port of Miletus. He says, the, the Spirit testifies that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so it's, it's not as though the Spirit is saying to him, you should not go there because you will get hurt, but rather, when you go there, you will suffer. You will suffer. And Paul is clearly sort of resolving himself to that fate. Um, and there's many similarities between Paul's uh, journey to Jerusalem, where he knew that he was to suffer in, in some way, and Jesus's Jerusalem uh, journey, where he knew he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer in some way. So it's clear that this is a prediction by the Spirit, not necessarily a pro prohibition. Uh, John Stott points that out. So it says, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on to board the ship, and they returned home. Now, I love that Luke includes this scene <clears throat> where the disciples go with them, go down to the boat. They accompany them as far as possible, all the way to the boat. They go with them. 
Um, I can just imagine the encouragement that came through their, that community. Uh, you know, Luke really gets detailed and kind of granular, including these things. He really wants to demonstrate to us the significance that the community had in supporting, even though, remember, one verse ago, they were saying, do not go to Jerusalem, do not go to Jerusalem. Um, in the end, they end up accompanying him to the ship, saying farewell, kneeling down on the beach. We have this really vivid scene of encouragement and of unity of purpose as they as they encourage uh, this group to go on to Jerusalem, even though they know that it's going to em- mean embracing and enduring suffering. And that's sort of one of the themes of this passage we'll get to. So continuing on, continuing on in verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now you notice uh, Luke loves details. He loves the details of this this travel journey. Um, one of the things he points out here is that they stayed with Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. They stayed with him. Um, now this guy Philip the Evangelist, we don't know a ton about him, but it seems most likely that he he's called Philip the Evangelist to differentiate him from Philip the Apostle. Remember, there's a uh, an apostle named Philip. There's this whole thing in the New Testament with people that have the same name. You know, you don't want to be called. Um, oh my goodness, who betrays Jesus? Okay, it's gonna bug me all day. That's so typical. Okay, Judas. Okay, Judas. <laughs> all of you are screaming at me. I'm sure. Okay, uh, you know, you don't want to be called Judas. There's someone named Judas who decides he'd rather go by something different, which makes total sense. Um, and and on and on. There's sort of multiples of names and wanting to know who's who. But Philip the Evangelist. Uh, it says one of the seven. What that seems most clearly to be referring to is back in Acts 6. Um, we had those those sort of proto-deacons uh, before the diaconate was necessarily established. Um, we had the apostles coming together saying it's not right that we give up preaching of the word and prayer in order to serve tables. And so they established the, the deacons, what later we would call the formal office of deacon, which we have here at Parkview as well. Um, and so he was one of the seven. You might remember that one of those uh, initial seven men that were set aside as deacons was called Philip. Um, and so they stay with Philip the evangelist, who's he's apparently known for his evangelism, and he was one of the seven, and he stayed with them. It's not totally clear if this is the Philip who evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, it's probably likely that it is, and not Philip the apostle. But anyway, that's why he's called that. That's why he's one of the seven. Wanted to make sure there's no question about what that means. Okay, go, moving on. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's a pretty significant announcement. That's We're used to in the Bible uh, someone introducing uh, a prophecy or a quotation of former scripture by saying, Thus says the Lord. Uh, so Agabus comes and says, uh, He took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and says, Thus th- says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, that might seem really odd to you, um, but if you have a little bit of background in the Old Testament, it was pretty typical of prophets to do what was called a sign act. Um, and so there, there are lots of examples in the Old Testament of prophet, prophets performing a public uh, sort of demonstration of, of the word that they were speaking. And so this, I'm not exactly sure why someone smarter than me maybe knows why they chose to do things in this way, but it certainly would have been an attention-getting maneuver. 
um, sort of a physical illustration, if you will, uh, of what what the Lord was trying to communicate. Uh, in the Old Testament, often these sign acts were both public, of course, and also shocking often. For instance, Hosea, he marries a, a prostitute and names his children, not my people, for instance, lo the bar, not my people. Um, and so, and in, in response to the Lord, Hosea was a prophet and the Lord wanted to communicate to his people, you are acting like this, but I am going to act like Hosea and I'm going to marry you. I'm going to make you my own. And um, the people who are not my people will become my people. And so that was a, a visible, vivid, uh, unignorable act of what the Lord was saying. Uh, you might remember Isaiah who walked around naked for a year and, um, and so forth. So uh, this, is just, this is another one of those things where he's taking his belt, he binds him, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Um, again, you notice it's not... Uh, he does not say you should not go to Jerusalem because of X, Y, Z. He says, this is how the Jews will bind the man who owns this belt. Um, not, not prohibiting, but predicting what will happen. And of course we, we will find out that is what happens in verse 12. He says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke includes himself there. When we heard this, we, we urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Um, and Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, and so we have this, this sort of response and uh, searching and analyzing and discussing, trying to discern the will of the Lord. And you can imagine, here's Paul, the intrepid, I mean, incredible force for the Lord Jesus in the ancient world. Think of all these churches that are being planted, the disciples that are being made, people discovering Jesus for the first time, uh, elders being raised up and the impact that he had. And suddenly he has this idea, why don't I go to the place where everyone hates me and wants to kill me? And so it's no wonder that, that the people around him are saying, this is probably not a good idea. <laughs> it's contrary to all common sense. And yet Paul is resolved in his spirit. Why are you weeping? And breaking my heart. I'm, I'm not only ready to be in prison, but to die in Jerusalem for the sake uh, of the name of the Lord Jesus. And this, this notes an important turning point in the book of Acts, where uh, up to this point, it's really a story about the sort of the cultural transformation and the expansion of the kingdom of Christ through individual communities of believers in different cities in the ancient world. And now from here on, really chapter 21 through 28, Narrow in, focus in, the narrative slows way down. Uh, <coughs> the narrative slows way down. And instead of, you know, each chapter, you know, the first the first uh, 21 chapters of Acts probably cover something like 20 years. And these last eight chapters or so are going to cover more like a, f a few years. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's way slowed down. We get way more detail. And it all centers around Paul and his trials all the way to Rome. Um, and so this is this is a significant turning point for us. Um, verse 14 sort of concludes this. It says, Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And so in the end, just like when they were at um, at uh, the place they were before, uh, it turns out that they they end up agreeing with Paul and they support him and they, they help him, even though they're sort of terrified of what's going to happen to him, even though they're sort of discouraging him initially. Uh, from going to the place where danger is most readily apparent, um, they support him. And it says, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. 
And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of uh, Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And so we have this picture of the community um, helping Paul discern, you know, whether he should move toward danger or away from it. And in both cases, they come to agree with him, support him, and so forth. So uh, the big idea, if I were to give you a big idea for this passage, it would be this. Take godly risks through the evaluation and encouragement of the community. Take godly risks through the evaluation and encouragement of the community. I think that's what we see in this passage. It's the community evaluating and eventually encouraging uh, godly risk uh, through Paul, even though initially it seems like a crazy idea. So a couple points of application, just a couple things to think about uh, as you prepare to hear this passage preached and then to discuss it in group. First of all, just because something is risky does not mean it is wrong. Another way to say that, you know, is that danger does not equal disaster for Christians. Because, just like we learned this last week in Acts 20, uh, as, as Paul said, my life is not precious, if only I may accomplish the ministry the Lord Jesus has given me. We have a higher value than life itself. We believe there are things worth dying for, whether it is the actual physical death that, that we may face for following Jesus, whoever, who knows if that might be our, our lot in life, or the sort of everyday deaths of losing reputation, losing comfort, whatever it might be. Sometimes following Jesus looks nuts, and that's right. And that's right. Risk is often right. Take godly risks through the evaluation and encouragement of the community. So that's the next part. We need the community. We need one another, especially I'm thinking in group life, to support godly risk-taking. We cannot just have our groups and our relationships with, with one another be sort of weekly comfort cubbies where we sort of snuggle up and just help each other feel good. Um, we, we also need to be fellow warriors, encouraging and refreshing one another to do what is costly but right. Um, now, there's a balance there. There's a tension there. And, of course, you know, there, there are often we are receiving and extending comfort and encouragement uh, to one another as we go through life's difficulties and valleys. But at the same time, if all we're doing is telling people to avoid risk, I think this passage would tell us there are times when we need to encourage one another toward risk, um, the risks that are right, the risks that God has taken us to. And indeed, I think this passage should teach us that the kingdom is often extended through godly risks when they're, when they're undertaken through the evaluation and encouragement of the community of Christ. So uh, with that said, I hope that leads to some good discussion for you and your group. I'm going to move on to the training segment. So if you're curious and want to learn more, stick around. And if you're a group leader, uh, stick with me as well. All right. Uh, this week, this week I want to share a little bit uh, from a book that I've been reading uh, or have read called Leadership as an Identity. It's from a guy called Crawford uh, Loritz Jr. Um, good book, helpful book. Uh, and two things that I've just been thinking about, both in light of what we learned in Acts 20 last week and just as I've just kind of met with you guys and, and heard some of your responses and the people uh, in your group, their responses to what we learned in Acts 20, which just to be honest, just a serious kind of challenge to us as leaders and the way that we lead, seeing Paul's example of leadership in Acts 20 um, there with the leaders in, in Ephesus and when they met in the port of Miletus to discuss uh, and, and him kind of encouraging them and commissioning them to lead the church in Ephesus after he left, talking about the values of, of Christian leadership. It's a challenge for us 
to, to wield our influence well and wisely um, in a way that honors Christ. Um, and so there are a couple of things that I found really helpful from, from Crawford Luritz in this book. Um, so the first, uh, first is that he talks about leading from emptiness, leading from emptiness. Um, here's what he says. So uh, he says, first, the challenge of leadership, the challenges of leadership are meant to make you hungry for God. There's an old saying, we turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover it is God who is shaking them. Moses was shaken to the core. God was all Moses had and all Moses wanted. As leaders, we need to pray that God will use the pressures that we face to give us an insatiable hunger and thirst for him. This is a marvelous place to be. The more you hunger for him, the closer he is to you. When you cry, God, I need you, he answers, I am right here. You have me. This is an incredible spiritual paradox. You are only filled with him when you are desperate for him. As Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And these are the, these are, this is a great question he asks. Are the challenges you face producing in you despair or are they causing you to be spiritually desperate? There is a big difference. Despair means to be without hope. Spiritual desperation means to turn to God as your only hope. Often God turns up the heat until you feel your hunger and embrace your desperation. And so there's a sense in which we must lead from emptiness, from a sense of need. If we feel, like I know many of you did after hearing last week's sermons, both at East and Central, in response to what we saw from Paul in Acts 20, if you feel daunted and overwhelmed by the task of Christian leadership, I don't, I don't know if that is a bug or a feature in God's plan for leadership. I think we're meant to feel a bit daunted, meant to feel a bit overwhelmed. And in fact, that's why, you know, when Paul says, I commission you to God and to the word of his grace, he's saying, in order to lead well, you need to lead from a place of neediness, from a place of emptiness. I'll say it this way. Growth becomes possible at the exact moment that we realize our need. And so leading leadership, whether it's a community group or whatever it is, whatever influence we have, is a practice of continual uh, cultivated neediness. And this is important in group leadership because people rarely outpace their leaders. It, it will be rare for you to find people in your group who, who, are, who will find themselves more needy than you are for the Lord's grace and power to do what he's called you to do. And so we must lead from emptiness. Um, and in fact, emptiness is the way of, of Jesus. I, I often think of, think of this uh, as like the thermostat that works in your house. Um, the way that your thermostat works, of course, it sits there, it detects the temperature, and then when it, get, it, it passes a certain set point, then it turns on, you know, the air conditioning or the heater or whatever. And how that works in the winter, you know, right now, well, it's kind of a nice day today, actually, but how it works in the winter is it's not until the heat in your house actually runs out until it hits whatever, you know, you hit it at 68. What, I don't know what your temperature is. Ours is 70. You know, once it hits 70 degrees, 69 degrees, that's its message. That's how it knows it's time to kick on the heat. And I think as leaders, we have to be cautious that we don't sort of protect ourselves by saying, I want to make sure, you know, my life doesn't escape from me. I want to be protecting it and sort of treat our life like a cup of coffee, full to the brim, hoping no one causes us to spill too much of it so that we lose it. Instead, seeing our lives as that thermostat that we want to spend ourselves, get, bleed out all that we can, all that we possibly can, knowing that God's life and love will flow into us at the exact moment that, uh, like that thermostat, when we feel empty, 
when we feel like we've cooled off, like our love has cooled off, that's the exact moment. That's God's. That's where God knows to flip on the switch um, to give us all that we need. We're, we're in most danger when we try to lead from fullness on our own. But we're in, we're in great safety when we lead from emptiness, expecting the Lord to come through for us on a minute-by-minute basis. Secondly, he talks about leading from fullness. So it's kind of just the opposite uh, of that, leading from fullness, obviously from God's fullness, not our own. He says this, The third truth we learn from Moses' encounter with God is that God's presence causes you to lead from rest. In Exodus 33, 14, God says to Moses, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This could very, uh, very well be a reference to the recent uh, turmoil and upheaval caused by the rebellion of the people at Sinai, and God was specifically promising Moses, Moses a reprieve from the hassles. But I also think this is a reference to the peace and rest found in his presence. Listen to this. Despite what is going on all around you, know that he not only has everything that you need, but he is also giving you all you, that you need to deal with whatever is before you. In this regard, you operate from a tremendous position of strength because his resources are endless. He gives you the strength that is not just to continue, but to thrive. Um, and so I, I want to encourage you and remind you that uh, we have this dual reality all at once in Christ, that we can lead from emptiness knowing that we always have God's rest with us. Uh, we always have his fullness with us. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't have to look to the things around us to provide that rest, the next vacation, the next moment of free time, uh, the next uninterrupted quiet moment in my house, which is <laughs> for me right now. Um, God has hooked us up. If, if we go to him in this way, seeking it, needing it, in a, in a place of emptiness, we can actually lead from rest rather than hoping that we can get through something just to get to uh, rest. So I hope as you lead as a leader, the sort of the inner psychology of a leader is both in a place of neediness and emptiness, knowing that the challenge in front of us is daunting and difficult, but also from a place of fullness, knowing that having been united to Jesus, God will always give us exactly what we need. He has never been late in, in the delivery of his grace and his power to us, and that he lives, he sits at the right hand of God, Jesus does, making sure moment by moment that you have everything that you need in order to do all that he has called you to do. You can lead from that kind of fullness. Um, so I just want to encourage you with that. Keep up the good work. Uh, and, and let's take a moment to just pray for our people as, as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray for our group members that as we discuss this passage that we would, you would bring the right things to mind, that you would help us to lead well, Help us to ask the right questions. Help us to love our people um, and bring the right things to mind in their hearts. Um, risks that you have called them to take, that we can encourage them toward. Um, ways that we can support one another as we take godly risk. And um, do all this, we pray, for the glory of Jesus. Pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, guys. We will see you next week for another episode of the Groups Podcast. Keep up the good work.